Welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. This is Rob Hunt coming to you from Southern California. We will be joined, as always, by our co-host Larry Michigan in just a few minutes uh, from Michigan Law in Chicago, Illinois. But today we are also joined by Morris Beagle, who is coming to us from uh, Loveland or Fort Collins, Colorado today. Uh, lovely to have you, Morris, and uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. So, kind of an excited time right now to uh, to have you as a guest. I mean, first of all, you know, you're on the uh, the hemp side of the industry. We're more on sort of the THC based cannabis side. Although, you know, Larry and I have both done a lot of work in, in hemp as well. We just had a huge election. You know, we're we're still waiting to get the final determination. We're waiting to see what happens. And a, a couple of races haven't been called yet in California, which could take you know several weeks. But um, let's talk about kind of the implications for the industry right now. This certainly wasn't the red wave that everyone was expecting. It certainly wasn't, you know, a 30-40 seat change in composition, as you know, most midterm elections are to the incumbent president. And we also saw quite a bit of canvas legislation on the ballot in five different states, you know, some that passed, some that didn't. So and any thoughts, you know, based on what happened uh, last week uh, in the election cycle? Well, like you said, uh, they you know, we were all kind of expecting this red wave based on all the media hype for the last month or so. And and it, it didn't happen, but it seems like we'll definitely have a Republican, you know, House and we'll see what happens with the Senate. There's going to be a runoff with the Georgia situation. So we're not even going to know that most likely until December. But I don't know. Our politics have been... So so bad the last five or six years it's been but we're still making progress in the cannabis space you know we got five states vote for recreational this year and we had two pass i think we got missouri and maryland and then arkansas failed north dakota failed and christy gnome's land of enchantment south dakota failed and if it would have passed, she said she would have signed it, but I don't know if I necessarily believe it. Oh, come on. So she said that last time, too, and then she didn't. We had a whole episode actually on here, you know, saying basically Christy Nome can go get stuffed. You know, we're, we're not big Christy Nome fans here in terms of, you know, what she's done in campus legalization or legislation. But, uh, but look, I mean, Maryland's a big one, you know, especially because, you know, there's an outgoing um, governor in Larry Hogan that was a Republican with an incoming governor who's uh, now a Dem in, um, in Maryland. You know, look, that, that initiative will definitely go through. They'll definitely be opening up Maryland adult use cannabis relatively quickly. Uh, the same thing is true, I think, Missouri. We're going to see it We're going to see it move pretty quickly, despite the fact that Missouri is a, kind of a dyed-in-the-wool red state. The voters, you know, were, were pretty clear in that state. The Dakotas, you know, who, who cares? <laughs> there's, there's no population there. It doesn't move the needle politically either way. You know, between the two states, there's less than 2 million in, in total population. As far as an addressable population of cannabis users... That's, that's you know, less than a million people. If you talk about who actually uses cannabis, we're talking about a couple hundred thousand people. Those markets would have been tiny anyway. It would have been nice to say, you know, we've got two more states in the books. But, you know, does it does it matter the way, you know, a state like Maryland matters? Or does it matter the way a state like Missouri matters? Uh, not really. You know, it's, it's more of a figurehead vote. But, I mean, look, what are your, what are your thoughts are as far as, you know, Maryland, what are your thoughts? I mean, these are these are relatively decent population states. Well, I'm I'm not surprised that Maryland passed. It's it's kind of right there in the hub of by New Jersey and Washington DC and New York and you know, that whole side of things. And you got Virginia. Eventually the the East Coast is going to be all recreational. 
and the, we'll see about South, South Carolina. That could be a challenging one. I think North Carolina will go eventually, but I think Maryland's a, a good win for the industry. Uh, it'll be, I don't know what their projections are, what they're going to do annually. I think I saw Missouri, they expect like $900 million a year first year, but in, two more to add to the books. And, you know, there wasn't any medical on the docket this year, as far as I know, right? No, no, it's just the five adult use uh, laws that, that went that were on the ballot. You know, again, two for five, surprisingly, what I'll say is like, it's rare to see a majority of cannabis legislation not pass in today's day and age. I mean, even even in conservative states, it's rare to, to not see it go through. But again, recreational is a different animal than medicinal. I don't think there's a state in the union where medicinal goes on the ballot and doesn't pass. But uh, but for adult use, you, know, you get into the more conservative areas and it's understandable that those are facing um, you know, a bit of headwinds. I was surprised by Arkansas not going through simply because it's you know so close to Oklahoma and Oklahoma right now is as wild west as any state comes. So, you know, do you want to keep that tax revenue internally or do you want to just basically hand it over to your neighbor who's going to be pumping weight across your border uh, in, into your state? So, you know, that one seemed to be a little little short-sighted, but with Asia Hutchinson, you know, as the governor in that state doesn't, you know, doesn't surprise me to see a, a former drug czar being, you know, pretty anti-cannabis. Also with that state, I heard from, or I read a fair amount of stuff that, the bill itself wasn't a very good bill and that there was a lot of industry folks that weren't really very supportive of it because of who would be kind of running the show and who could play and who couldn't play. And so I think that there was some issues with the bill itself where a lot of the cannabis folks voted against it. Why legalize when it's going to be a crappy bill? Yeah. I mean, look, we saw that happen in Ohio, you know, what, seven, eight years ago yep. when, uh, when legalized Ohio tried to come out and say, we're going to dominate an industry. We're going to do it to the exclusion of everyone else. And no other participants can enter, but those of us that actually sponsored the bill to begin with, people see through that, you know, the voters see through that. So agreed. If it's going to be a, a bad bill, then go back to the drawing board and say, you know, put something on the table that's going to benefit the industry. So not, not too surprised. I am seeing a lot of, uh, headlines today about other states now that think they can move forward with uh, cannabis legalization. Minnesota, you know, came out today saying they're going to put something on the, uh, uh, in front of the voters very, very soon based on the composition now internally of, you know, the state house of Minnesota, and they think they can move it forward pretty quickly. So, you know, this election, I think, will have a ripple effect outside of just the five bills that were in front of voters nationally. But the bigger question is, and we've been talking about this a lot on the show, is what does this mean for SAFE? You know, it, it looks, at this point, it looks like... Um, Laxalt's going to, you know, going to hold on in, in Nevada. I mean, by the time we actually air this, I think the announcement will come out that Laxalt has held on in Nevada and uh, pick up a, a seat that basically evens out, you know, Fetterman beating Oz in Pennsylvania. Um, at this point, it, it looks very unlikely that, uh, that Masters is going to beat Kelly in Arizona. So, you know, that, that's going to, you know, keep the composition the same. So really, it just comes down to Georgia. As you said, we're not going to know about that for a while. Georgia's not going to be decided until December the 6th. Um, it's a crapshoot. You know, the libertarian guy picked up about 2% of the vote in that state. So we're talking about, you know, 49.1 versus 48.5, I think, was you know how it's shaping up to look uh, at the end of the, uh, the the original. But, you know, the libertarian vote normally inures to the benefit of the Republicans. But at the same time, if this is a referendum on, on Trump, which a lot of, you know, the pundits on both, you know, Fox and the more liberal uh, media are saying, you know, is Trump going to be able to rally the base with his with his candidate and Walker? But crazy to think that two years later, the balance of the Senate now again comes down to Georgia. And if, if we don't know what's going to happen, the lame duck session of Congress comes back in right after Thanksgiving. And if SAFE is going to pass, you know, 
does Schumer take that chance? Does Schumer take the chance of losing the Senate, uh, knowing that the House is already lost? I mean, at this point, it's, it's, it's almost a certainty that the House is lost. Does that force the hand in, uh, in, in the halls of Congress to say, okay, let's take what we can get right now. Let's, let's take whatever win it is. It's, it, let's not let the, uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good. And, and I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, I, I think it's certainly possible that Schumer's going to go that direction uh, because, like you said, the House is going red. I think that that's a foregone c- conclusion at this point. And if you got a red house, I don't see the Safe Banking Act most likely going through. So I would say that now's the best time to try to pull the trigger and, and see what can happen. Yeah, I think that's right. I think if you know if nothing else, we're going to see a transitional period where the committee heads are going to change regardless, right? So, you know, watching guys that, you know, before have been sitting there in the minority that now are taking over, whether it's Jim Jordan at the head of judiciary or, you know, whether it's, um, you know, other other major changes. I mean, I think the first priority that these guys have coming in is to cause a fair amount of consternation to the, uh, to the Biden administration. It's not going to be about passing legislation. It's going to be about um, undoing whatever they perceive to be wrongs that are, that are happening right now um, nationally whether it's, you know, investigations of Hunter or whether it's investigations of, um, of, of the pullout from Afghanistan, Canvas is not even on that radar for those guys. So if you're going to do it, you know, I'd say now is, is the, the time to make a move. And I think you'll actually see a, a fair amount of um, people on both sides of the aisle say, yeah, let's just rally, get safe done. And I don't think you'll see a tremendous amount of pushback, um, you know, in the Senate either. So at this point, you know, I'm very, very hopeful for the first time in, you know, the last seven times the safe has passed that we actually get to see it, you know, pass both chambers. Well, so do you think McConnell will support this? He's been against it pretty much the whole time. Yeah, he has been, but, you know, there's enough enough support on the Senate side. You know, I think at this point uh, they feel pretty confident that there's enough um, enough members of the Republican side that will compromise on this one and say, okay, for you know, the purposes of safety and you know, supporting law enforcement and all the other things that safe banking would do to, to allow you know, businesses to be able to be more transparent in uh, electronic transactions, that, uh, that I think it goes through. I mean, again, to your point, do I think that McConnell would ever support a standalone cannabis bill? Like, his reaction has been, you know, we did the farm bill in 2018 that did hemp. That's as far as I'm prepared to go, and it was already a huge compromise for me. Retroactively, I bet I bet McConnell regrets that decision. I bet he regrets that that support. I mean, again, we can shift to hemp here for, for a second. This is your industry, but I think if McConnell had understood what extraction is and you know how you can you know go through the process of working progress, progress hemp oil and you know then go through a conversion process of taking you know CBD isolate and turning it into D eight and D nine, and you know ultimately end up with the same product they're trying to prevent with the farm bill. I don't think that he would have supported it. I just don't think they had the information at that time to, to make an informed decision. But, I mean, you're, you're dealing with it all the time. In the hemp industry, like, the, you guys are now, well, I say you guys, your, your side of the industry is certainly pumping out a lot of psychotropic product into a lot of bodegas around the South, um, you know, using the farm bill as a shield. And maybe you can speak a little bit more to that right now. Well, yeah. I mean, first, you know, McConnell was very supportive and very instrumental in getting the farm bill passed. You know, he's been very instrumental in helping the hemp industry get going. And while he may, might not have really understood cannabinoids, which he didn't, um, he certainly, just like, I don't think really anybody in our industry saw this D8 and all this stuff coming because, and it wouldn't have come if the FDA had done their job and regulated CBD as a dietary supplement and a food and beverage additive when the farm bill was passed. 
Um, because they didn't, and because we have this ambiguity and we had all this excess biomass because we just overgrew the system, uh, it's sitting around and you got the guys in the lab saying, hey, look at what we can do. We can take this one molecule and we can convert it into all these other molecules that can, you know, we can convert it to D9, D8, THCO, HHC, and whatever else. And, you know, here we are, we've got hemp-derived, psychoactive, intoxicating products out there. And as a hemp guy, as really a fiber and grain guy, somebody who's really an industrial hemp guy, not even a cannabinoid guy. I mean, I certainly support CBD and CBG and all of that stuff is dietary supplements and health products and so forth. I did not see the intoxicating lane coming to uh, the hemp side of things. And I believe that it belongs in the adult use side. And I know that the marijuana industry is not happy about this. But at the same time, it is opening the doors in all these states that don't have legalized adult use cannabis. And there's a way for it to work in harmony with each other where we don't hate each other on these sides of the cannabis plant. Um, I don't know how that's going to all play out, but it's certainly 21 plus product, at least 18 plus product. And maybe there's another lane that it's goes into smoke shops and it's regulated like Kratom and Kratom's not even regulated, but it's a confusing side of things at this point in time. And as a hemp guy, it really doesn't belong in our lane. The, the, the farm bill never intended this. There's a loophole. We're talking 0.3% Delta nine dry weight. We're not talking a gummy that's got less than 0.3%, you know, THC in it or Delta eight or Delta nine or whatever. You know, that I've seen 100 milligram chocolate candy bars. That's, you know, hemp derived Delta nine. And it's like, that was never, ever, ever the intention of the farm bill. It's interesting you say that because I don't think there's any disagreement there. I mean, Larry and I are both attorneys. We, we've both looked at the language of the farm bill very closely. I've had debates with all sorts of other you know, legal scholars in the cannabis space, specifically on this point. And, and what I come back with is, you know, legislative intent ran headfirst into the four corners of, the, of the, the wording. You know, the way they wrote that bill, they might not have had the legislative intent, but unfortunately they opened this door. And now, you know, what I've been seeing, and this is the thing that really surprised me in the last couple of months, because I, I wrote I wrote a white paper on this several years ago, right when the IFR from the DEA came out, you know, trying to, to walk this back. And my response was, you know, good luck, DEA. That might be what you guys want, but it's it's not law. What you're saying is what we call dicta. And, and the law is, you know, hey, inadvertently, you guys just legalized all cannabinoids as derived from hemp. And I, that was a very unpopular position when I first took it. And now I'm seeing law firms all through the South that are actually putting out um, legal opinions on letterhead that are supporting that uh, that belief and supporting that opinion. Say, hey, look, we've read this thing. If Congress wants to change, you know, the, the letter of the law, they're free to do so. They can go back there and, and change what they've drafted. But what they've drafted, you know, legalize THC, legalize THC in every form. As long as you actually take hemp down at 0.03 percent by dry weight, whatever happens after that, at that point, it's fully removed, completely removed from the, the Controlled Substances Act. And once you've bifurcated from the Controlled Substances Act and said that this is legal, and by the way, then the, then the law says, and anything that follows, any isomers, any salts, any derivatives, any you know anything else is all legal as well. A again, it wasn't their intent, but in a practical manner of speaking and in the way it was drafted, they, they legalized it that day. And by the way, Scott Gottlieb, who was running the FDA at the time, 
went in front of Congress and said, you buffoons, do you know what you just did? You, you just legalized all cannabinoids. And, uh, you know, a couple others took that opinion very quickly, too. The Brookings Institute came out and, and said the same thing. A few others looked at it and, and said the same thing. So, you know, when you say that no one really foresaw this um, happening, I can tell you that I, I always looked at it from the perspective of what's the aggregate effect of taking down a field of your hemp, you know, hemp that you'd be using for fiber and say, okay, well, if I were to process that and extract it, there's still a meaningful amount of THC. Even, you know, take away the conversion process from CBD uh, isolate to, uh, to THC Delta-8, Delta-9, or HHC. And, and just, you know, think about just how much THC resides, even at 0.03% in 50 acres of hemp or 100 acres of hemp. There's a ton, just the way I always use the, and I always use the analogy that if you, you know, you're in the Kennecott copper mine in, in Utah, you might be extracting for copper, but there's still plenty of platinum, there's still plenty of gold, there's still plenty of other trace minerals that are in there that aren't getting thrown away. They're going, okay, let's, let's take everything that's in here. So, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question. And again, I'd love to ask you more about your business, but before we do, Larry, how are you? You just joined us. Um, we're here with Morris Spiegel and Morris, uh, is coming to us with all sorts of uh, knowledge on the hemp industry. But uh, why don't you say hello? I will. Thank you, Rob, as always. And uh, Dan, nice to see you. Morris, thank you so much for joining the show. I apologize for being a few minutes late. little equipment failure on my part, which I remedied by running home to get the computer I forgot to bring to the office. So um, now I get to do it from home, which is all nice, much more relaxing. Uh, but it's wonderful to have you on the show. And, um, you know, I, I, I tuned in right at the point that really is very interesting for me. And that is the purpose of the Farm Bill and, and what did the government really intend. And, and I would argue I don't think there was anything inadvertent about it at all. I think that the information was always there. I think it was a question of whether people really chose to educate themselves on the topic before they voted uh, like they would anything. And I think that in this instance, if the, this is typical of – D.C. politics at that time and this time as well. You know, that was a time when with Trump in the White House, the, the Democrats were loath to allow the Republicans to pass anything if they could stop it. Uh, and basically, Mitch McConnell came in and said, yep, we're going to do it because the folks in Kentucky said to him, don't be a fool, Mitch. This is what we do. And so he said yes. And they put it in there. You know, you have a farm bill that's two or three thousand pages long with what, two pages devoted to this? It, it, it wouldn't have been that difficult. The, the evidence all exists. Everybody knows and I'm not saying that they intended to provide marijuana, uh, uh, higher TA, you know, THC to people as a way around the other the laws, but best for them, it, it's sloppy government work. You know, you're finally addressing something that's been illegal forever. You would think that it might deserve at least a few minutes to understand what you're doing and be able to send signals to the industry. I'm sure the same is with you, but I've got many clients who are constantly operating in a state of, well, can we be doing this? Can we not be doing this? They kind of said we could, but then they said we can't. And I imagine it, you know, it, for anybody who's trying to sit down and come up with a long-term business plan, it has to be incredibly disruptive. Yeah, no question. So you made a, a really interesting distinction a few minutes ago, which is that you're not on the cannabinoid side of the hemp industry. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't realize the hemp industry is a lot broader than, you know, cannabinoid-based because all the fanfare recently has gone into cannabinoids. But ultimately, you know, I always think of hemp as, you know, a fiber. I always think of it as, you know, used for all sorts of other materials, whether it's, you know, alternatives to plastics or, you know, hempcrete or clothing or, you know, tell us about what it is that you do in the industry and tell us about, you know, kind of uh, how you got into it. And, and, and please plug your, uh, your company in the process. Oh, well, so I started Colorado Hemp Company in 2012. Um, I come from the music industry. I was in the music industry for 25 years and primarily in the the CD business, um, 
did a lot of CD and DVD manufacturing, packaging, distribution, had several record labels, worked with a bunch of record labels, put on shows, did a marketing promotion, managed bands. And the internet basically killed physical media. And once that happened, the digital side of things didn't really uh, cover the physical side of things uh, as far as the losses go. So, you know, cannabis is happening in Colorado. Medical really got rocking in 2009, 2010. The music industry was definitely taking a crap at that point in time. And it's like, where do I want to go? Where do I want to reposition myself? And I didn't really want to get in on the adult use side of marijuana and all of that. It's like when we introduced Amendment 64, is that what it was? Amendment 64? Yeah. Within that legislation, there was an opportunity for Colorado farmers to start growing industrial hemp. So this is pre-2014 Farm Bill. And it's like, huh, you know, I know what hemp clothing is and apparel and cordage and, you know, hemp foods, superfoods, using the seed and hemp oil and protein powder and all this. And so it's like, hey, I'm going to start Colorado Hemp Company. And it was basically started as an apparel company. And we started repping hemp shoes and hemp bags and wallets and stuff like that. And and we passed Amendment 64. And it's like, hey, we can start growing hemp here. And a friend of mine, Ryan Laughlin, grew the first hemp crop and a long time here in Colorado. He grew like 54 acres and um, and federally still illegal, but uh, nothing happened to him. And so he grew that in 2013, at which time I also launched another offshoot called Tree Free Hemp, a hemp paper and printing company, which I've been doing paper printing, commercial printing and stuff since the early 90s in the music industry. And it's like, all right, well, we can do business cards and posters and flyers and marketing collateral and so forth. And then I launched NOCO Hemp Expo in 2014, which in turn has become the largest hemp expo in the world. And, you know, the initial thing was based around textiles and what could become building materials and plastics. And, you know, there was a hemp food company out here called Evo Hemp and who was doing superfood energy bars. And, and that show has grown and grown and grown. But in 2015 is when all of a sudden here all come all these CBD companies. And it's like, oh, wow this is cool. And CBD has certainly dominated the the conversation and the revenue stream since everything got going with the 2014 farm bill, which, you know, yeah, it was a pilot program. You know, could we commercialize things? There's still some nuance there, but, you know, it didn't stop anybody from taking product to market. And all of a sudden we've got a pretty robust CBD business by the time 2017 rolls around. And then the 2018 Farm Bill, you know, federally legalizes it, takes it off the schedule. And and then it's like we're off to the races. And all of a sudden, everybody's growing hemp. There's this huge supply, oversupply thing that starts happening. And, you know, and here we are today with, uh, you know, the result of all the oversupply getting converted into products that – we didn't really, I didn't see, and most people in the industry didn't see, but I guess, uh, you know, hearing your explanation for how the farm bill passed and, you know, it's two pages long and yeah, you could take all the isomers and the derivatives and, you know, you could certainly convert any of this stuff. And as you said, if you're extracting 50 acres or 300 acres or 500 acres for CBD and you've got all these leftover compounds, you know, there's certainly plenty of THC in there. And I talked to several people back in 2017, 2018. It's like, you know how much THC we can get out of this 150 acre field? We can get a lot. And a lot of people were taking that um, and doing stuff with it back then. 
and they were taking the smokable hemp flower too and dusting that with shatter long before and selling that as regular legal weed. Um, well, not legal weed, but black market weed. So, I mean, there's been all kinds of stuff going, but back to the, I guess the question, you know, the fiber side of things for composites and building materials and paper pulps, um, the grain side of things for human superfoods, energy bars, um, milks, uh, protein powders, you know, that to me, there's just a, a huge opportunity in the course of the next 5, 10, 20 years to really implement industrial hemp into multiple industries, um, multiple supply chains, where it can make a great difference for human health, animal health, planetary health, and so forth. I agree with that. And I think it's, uh, you know, very astute of you to say it too, because there's far too many people that are just completely focused on the CBD. And you know, it, it may have been worthwhile at one point, but it hasn't been for a while. And in fact, here in Illinois, when we go and talk to farmers about their willingness to grow hemp for commercial purposes, we're getting a lot of pushback. These guys are like, everybody told me I was going to make millions for CBD. And all I know is I got left with acres and acres of un nobody wanted to come in and buy my hemp. So now you tell me, oh, I'm going to grow hemp and you're going to use it for something else. Well, you know, how do I know I'm not going to get stuck with a warehouse full of, of you know, plant that we've harvested and we can't sell it. We can't use it. Nobody wants it. And it, yeah, I think it's a slow process to kind of convince them that, look, CBD was great for a while. It was probably overhyped a little bit, but, you know, it certainly worked. And it's not going away. People are always going to want to buy CBD, I imagine. Uh, you know, now the advantage is you can try something new. But one guy's telling me, oh, the, the seeds for commercial hemp are different. So you have to have different machines to plant your fields. And you have to have, you know, other different considerations. And quite frankly, I'm just not enough of a farmer to be able to to talk all of the lingo with them, but I, I, I get the concern. But on the other hand, you know, if it's going to be one of those things that's, that's going to really have an ability to take hold again, right? I mean, you're, you're no, you're, you're, you probably know hemp as well as anybody. It, it, up until the beginning of the 1900s, it was the major cash crop of this country and it was used forever. Nobody was using it for CBD back then, at least not as far as we know. Maybe Ben Franklin was smarter than he let on, but, uh, you know, I mean, otherwise, right? I mean, the, these people were using hemp for everyday purposes. So if, if it was good enough for people back at that time, I think the people realize it probably has some application going forward. And when you factor it into the whole ecological movement and, you know, leaving negative footprints and zero carbon footprints and, you know, people say you can grow enough hemp to make paper to save all the rainforest that's left. You know, we don't have to cut down any more rainforest trees for paper. It sounds great, but, you know, I, I think that's probably a huge, huge, huge financial undertaking, you know, to really get companies to convert and to get people to prepare it for them the way they each company specifically needs it. And again, to find enough farmers to really do it. But like anything else, right, it'll, it's going to it's going to happen over time. It's going to happen. And it's not going to be these cannabis horticulture type folks growing it. It's going to be traditional ag row crop corn, soy, wheat type farmers that have got hundreds, thousands of acres, co-ops, and it'll be popping up in areas where there's a processor that can do the grain or the fiber, grain and fiber, um, within 50 to 100 miles of where everything's going to be grown. And you'll have a contract and I'm going to grow 500 acres of, of a dual crop. And you know, the processor is going to take all the grain and they're going to take all the stocks and in turn, they're going to have contracts, ideally with whatever the construction industry or the paper industry. And, and that's starting to happen. We're going to have 15 or so industrial hemp processing plants by the middle of next summer. 
So, you know, we did have two decortication units in the U.S. operating like in the last two years or three years, but now we'll have like 15. And then the following year, we'll have like 30. And so we're going to see an increase in acreage and it's that increase in acreage isn't going to be growing for cannabinoids. And as you said, that business is always going to be there. I think you've got the Charlotte's webs of the world that are big companies. They just did a $30 million advertising deal over three years with major league baseball. And you know, that's a big deal. You got the first real major sports league that says, Hey, we'll take your $30 million. Wasn't the NBA, it wasn't the NHL, and it wasn't the NFL. So cannabinoids aren't going away. And, and by the way, it was instantaneous. If you looked during the World Series, you actually saw the Charlotte's Web logo in the bullpen. So, you know, they, they started that campaign immediately following the announcement. It was, yep. There was no lag there. And, you know, they found the CBD market has found its way into the natural products market. And if you go to Expo East or Expo West, which I go to both of those, and you'll find 15, 20, 30 CBD companies there. And while it's not what it was in 2018 and 2019 with all the hype, that stuff's still there. And, and still a lot of the big companies have backed off and they're not touching in until the FDA does something. And hopefully they're going to. I mean, I just got off the phone with Jonathan Miller today, and I'm sure you know Jonathan from the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. And they've been up there on Capitol Hill working on this for years. And you know, they're optimistic something's going to happen in the next 12 to 24 months, but, you know, <laughs> we'll see. It's like we were just saying before, right? It, it, they almost stumble into this without even knowing what they're doing. Now, I, I would take exception, I think, with, you know, saying that, you know, previously before the Farm Bill had been, it had been federally illegal. I think that there was a very strong argument. And, Rob, I think that ties into the argument you were making because uh, that case came up before 2018 originally with the DEA. The HIAA, the Hemp Industry Association of America lawsuit. Right. It, it wasn't one of the arguments that, you know, under current definitions, hemp isn't should not even be considered federally illegal. I'm not going to argue with them because now they've agreed and said it is federally illegal. But, you know, that's part of the bigger problem here is that, you, you know, again, you've got a government that realizes that public sentiment is such that it's got to do something, but they're not really quite interested enough to to do it all the way and and to just make these decisions once and for all. So it's it can be very limiting to people who are the you know the, the pioneers and the groundbreakers, you know, like you and and the folks that come to your your conferences, because the, you know the the, the, DE, the FDA. What is the FDA screwing around with this for? You can't sell edibles because we haven't determined if CBD is safe for human consumption. They act as though it just appeared on the earth, you know, the day the farm bill was signed, like it had never been around. It, this is. It's ridiculous. Right. Well, you know, we going back to like the 1900s, 1800s, um, there were cannabis tinctures all over the place. And it wasn't just like T THC was the only compound in there. We, you know, there's a hundred cannabinoids or whatever there is in it. And so CBD has been consumed by humans for a long time in some capacity. And so for human safety, I mean, what is it going to take to really cause liver damage? And does that, what, 5,000 milligrams in a day on a regular basis? I mean, if you're taking 100 milligrams a day, if you're drinking a, a beverage that has it, you're eating a candy bar that has it, you're taking a tincture that has it and a capsule and you're putting some top topicals on um, I think the World Health Organization already said that there's just a very, very low opportunity for any sort of toxicity and, you know, it's safe. 
and but yet the FDA is like, well, we don't have the data yet. Okay. <laughs> they don't have their data yet. It exists all over the world. They don't want to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Go to Israel. It's there. Right. Yeah. Well, we've been joking about that for a long time where it's, you know, an anecdotal evidence perspective. Well, even look at, you know, how many years people have been consuming cannabis throughout the world for, you know, if, if there are major issues uh, associated with the consumption of cannabis or cannabinoids or, or hemp, it would have long ago exposed itself naturally that, you know, every doctor out there would say, oh, yeah, you can't, you know, that, that stay away from that plant. It's toxic. I mean, I think we've learned as humans over you know millennia which plants you don't eat, which plants you don't smoke, which plants you don't use because of toxicity levels. I don't think I need, you know, the FDA to tell me that. Right. I agree. Because the, the pharmaceutical industry is telling them what to say in the first place, oftentimes. <laughs> but that's another whole issue. And that's one that, you know, you've obviously been dealing with in the hemp industry. And you alluded to it earlier with CBD. That the second CBD was uh, considered to be uh, an approved pharmaceutical ingredient, an API, uh, specifically for um, Epidiolex with GW Pharma, which is now Jazz Pharmaceuticals, a very powerful group. Then instantaneously, that was taken off the, um, the the list of what could be used as you know a supplement or a diet uh, dietary supplement or a food additive, which which is insane that you can't straddle both sides of the line. Just because science got medicinal benefit doesn't mean it shouldn't you know be able to have some sort of benefit um, holistically as well. And you know that that kind of goes back to like okay, is this the supplements industry, which is like an unregulated industry, or is it the pharmaceutical industry? My question is, are there not times? where it can be both. I mean, we, there's certainly no doubt based on, you know, not just uh, anecdotal, but empirical evidence that um, really, really high doses of CBD have proven to be, you know, hugely beneficial from a medical perspective with relation to um, spasticity, right? You know, like Dravet syndrome and, and Lennox Gestalt and Parkinson's, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that, you know, a fair portion of CBD, significantly less, might not be very helpful for sleeping or, or, for, or for other things that, uh, that, that people want to use it for. So does it, does it have to be only like, you know, sold across the uh, the counter with a prescription or can it be something that's, you know, over the counter in terms of just like walking up and, and paying for it at Walgreens? And that's, that's where I just don't understand the position of the FDA. And you're saying that, you know, we're, we're expecting to see new legislation in the hemp world. Maybe you can expand on, you know, like I know all the legislation that's pending right now for THC, but what's going on right now for, for hemp? What are you guys waiting for the government to change? And what's the, um, what's the progress report? Well, obviously, there's the the farm bill of 2023 that's starting to get talked about, and we'll see what happens with that. I know that at our conference in March, we're going to be talking about it quite a bit. We'll have some USDA folks out at that. Bill Richmond, who's the head of the hemp division, he's been participating in our events. And then, um, oh, who is the head of the USDA right now? What's his name? He's actually buddies with the Colorado, he's with Polis and um, Michael Bennett. And anyway, we're trying to get him out. And, you know, I, I think that the, the farm bill is going to be the, the most important part of legislation. As far as the CBD side of things, I know that the, the round table's got a couple of bills out there and I can't remember what the letters and the numbers are on those. Um, are you talking Tom Vilsack? Huh? Yeah. Vilsack. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He's head of the department of agriculture, I believe. Yeah. And Vilsack, while he was kind of a Monsanto guy, or not kind of, a Monsanto guy, definitely under Obama, he's starting to shift his position a little bit and be receptive of 
regenerative agriculture and more focused on organic and trying to really look at the devastation that conventional farming has done to our planet over the course of the last 50 years, um, particularly the last 30 years. And so I'm hopeful of that. I'm a big proponent of regenerative agriculture and, and then how can hemp be part of that and rotate in and help clean the soil and sequester carbon and so forth. Um, but when back to the legislation side of things, you know, I just feel that, you know, there's, there's a lot of pressure from the hemp groups. Um, you know, you mentioned Hoban, you know, I've worked with Bob for a long time and, you know, they've got their own direct funnel into the FDA and, you know, Bob said at my Southern Hemp Expo last year that he felt that by this time this year that there would be some movement. And, well, he was wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> We've all tried to look into the, you know, to the crystal ball and, and say, you know, it's going to be 12 months or 18 months or 24 months. I mean, it it's going to have to happen eventually because you can't put it back in the bottle. I mean, the stuff is everywhere. It's and you can't shut it down. There's just no way to shut it down. So you have to regulate it um, and make sure that the that we're compliant, whatever those regulations are, and we're making the safest products possible for the consumer. He's just brave enough to give an opinion. Yeah, you know, states have taken it upon themselves. Uh, you know, the CDPHE here in Colorado, we can put it in food and beverages, and so we've got you know hit CBD seltzers all over the place, and we've you know you can sell them in bars and. Um, you can sell them in grocery stores and it's, it's everywhere in Colorado. It's everywhere in California. Now it's everywhere after the California thing finally happened and it got approved. Um, I know that that was a challenging thing with the hemp side of things and the marijuana side of things. And the, the hemp people are still not happy about that. And, you know, Tennessee in the South or you know, Florida, you can basically have everything. And the, that's where all the, like the Delta eight and the, THCOs and you got all that stuff and you find that stuff in gas stations and convenience stores and all kinds of things. I, I just don't see how you shut it down. Well, have you been to New York City recently? Yeah. New York City, it's, you know, drugs are legal now. Like essentially 100% legal. Like, there's stores, like, every city block right now in Manhattan, you can buy weed across the counter. It's crazy to me. And they haven't even put their regulations in place, Right. No, no, no. These are all obviously illicit storefronts. You know, they're not doing this with the blessing of the state. But, you know, if, if I'm out there applying for a cannabis license right now in New York, I'm certainly wondering about the utility of paying for that license and for the infrastructure when, you know, I know that I'm competing against an illicit market that no one, no one in law enforcement seems to have any desire to shut down. You know, they, they, they seem to have just given up in New York City and just said, OK, yeah, whatever. It's harmless. You know, it's not just it's not just you know, the D8s and the D9s coming from hemp. It's, it's, you know, cannabis coming from the West Coast and it's, you know, psilocybin and, and other things as well. I mean, it's, you know, like name your, uh, name your, your kind of progressive drug of choice these days. And, uh, you know, New York is probably the most progressive, but I'm wondering whether or not other states follow. I mean, look, the South, as you said, Florida, Texas, uh, Louisiana, like all those states, you can walk into bodegas everywhere and get hemp derived um, D8 and D9 products. And you can even buy them through the mail now. Like people are shipping all over the country. So as you know, a cannabis operator, you have to be sitting there looking at going, okay, what's going to be done about this? And why am I spending so much money to, uh, to state regulators when they're not even you know, protecting the market that we're in uh, and, and doing anything about this? So like, it's, it, it's always so strange for me to say because I spent the majority of my adult life advocating for you know, more progressive cannabis laws. 
And now for the first time, I'm regressive where I'm like, okay, you know, we've, we've got to put some of this back in the bottle because if not, you're going to destroy an industry and force all of it back to the illicit market, which is something that nobody wants, but for the outlaws, you know, and hats off to the outlaws for getting us here, but now you've got the chance to do it a different way. And uh, for your industry, it, it basically puts a, a black eye on everything that's happening in, in progressive hemp farming. Uh, because you're associated with something that you're not. Right. Now, I can tell you the grain and fiber folks can't stand this stuff because, and you know, there, there's another piece of legislation that we're trying to get incorporated into the farm bill is this grain and fiber exemption. So if you're going to grow for grain and fiber, um, it would ex you'd be exempted from the testing aspect of it, which is expensive. And then the FBI background checks. It's like if I'm a farmer and I want to grow corn and wheat and somebody wants me to grow hemp for them and they're if they're going to pay me to grow 500 acres of hemp, I don't want to sit there and spend thousands of dollars on testing the THC levels if I'm buying certified seed that's, you know, AOSCA certified. You know, it's either come from Europe, it's come from Canada, or it's been bred here and it's got certified. Why do I need to test it? And I certainly don't want to get a background check and, and go through that whole process. It should be treated just like corn and soy. But, you know, with the cannabinoid side of things, I, I get that there has to be a different regulatory framework if you're growing for that. And even it's supposed to be 0.3%, which it could go to 1% in the farm bill, or it could go to 0.7% um, to eliminate some of the hot hemp that's out there. You know, we're pushing for 1%. I think it should all be, there shouldn't even be a percentage. It should be THC irrelevant. It should all be in juice. And if it's going to be a supplement that's going to Whole Foods or GNC, you know, if it can only have one milligram of THC per serving or two or two and a half or three um, or zero, even if it was that and it was broad spectrum, then that's how it should be regulated. It should be in juice. Where is it going? If it's going in a dispensary, it can be this. If it's going to the grocery store and it has to be this. If it's going into a a wall or a guitar or a piece of paper who gives a fuck if there was 30 percent thc in the waste material that ends up in a wall you know it's like if we're, if we're being sensible which i know that humans really in politics and and that stuff is not really sensible and common sense it should just be in use that we're going to make it complicated and there's going to be in different lanes that we're going to have to follow one way or another, you know, but for deadheads and fish heads, you're going to have to make sure you put a good warning up then that says, don't smoke this wall. Like the dead did with their hats when they sent out the hemp hats. Exactly. Did you ever see those Rob, the, the Terrapin station hemp hats? Yeah. 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 It used to be on the tag saying like in small print, don't, yeah, don't smoke this hat. I mean, look, I, I remember, I remember like when hemp clothing stores, I had a good buddy of mine back in the, the mid nineties at a hemp clothing store in Burlington, Vermont. And like the cops would mill around his store all the time. And we're like, buddy, he sells clothing. <laughs> like what, what is it you think you're going to bust him for? You know, it's shipping across legal, legal, legal hemp fiber from Canada that, uh, you know, has been able to ship for years. And it's just, it's crazy to me, just the misconception of, you know, what hemp is. And as you said, Larry, if you go back in the history of the United States, you know, there's a requirement at a certain point to, to grow it. You know, and then from uh, what Morris is saying, here's another one that I think, you know, we should probably dig, dig into just a little bit more which is the regenerative properties. You know, you, you touched on it, but I don't think a lot of people out there understand that if you're trying to, you know, regenerate soil and you're trying to add nutrient back in or you're trying to leach, um, you know, a Superfund site, probably the best crop you can plant is hemp. 
And, you know, there's good things about that and bad things. Good things that it certainly does its job. Bad things that there was for a while unscrupulous guys that were trying to take that hemp that was being used for regenerative purposes and, and sell it when it was, you know, absorbing everything that was in that soil. So you're watching guys, you know, take regenerative grown hemp uh, in China that was, you know, being used to soak up bad, you know, leaching fields essentially and then migrate to the United States and try to sell for whatever purposes. So, I mean, I'm guessing, I'm guessing you've run into the charlatans in the industry as well that don't take organic certification or OMRI certification all that seriously um, as they're, they're working their hemp product. But I've got to think there's, there's sort of white hat, bad hat, or black hats, um, you know, happening in, in your side of the industry as well right now. Oh, yeah. There's no question. There's, there's good actors and there's bad actors, just like there is in the THC space. This is fascinating, and I could, I love hemp. I could keep talking about this all day. Have you guys delved at all into the uh, elections, Rob? We, we we talked about the election for the first ten or fifteen minutes later before we got on. So we covered we covered the losses. We we already shared our disgust for our, our friend Christy Nome in South Dakota, who who claims she would actually this time you know let it go through. Uh, you know, it's easy to say when you're when you're you know playing armchair quarterback the day after and you know the things already failed. Oh, too bad, guys. What if what if signed it into law this time? <laughs> What's what's with the people of South Dakota? Their governor took it away. They approved it. She took it away. And then they were, are they just like blind sheep? And they, well, the governor didn't like it, so we're not going to approve it this time? I don't know. Maybe they're just saving up all their uh, their, their vice for you know alcohol use at Sturgis. It's, it's hard to say. I don't know what happens in that state. They're like anything. They're all stupid. It's like Arkansas, right? That they got, Well, we have real health concerns. It's like, did you, you have health concerns. Did you see the study that came out last week? that said one out of five teenage deaths last year was alcohol-related. One out of five teenage deaths in a country with guns and suicide and everything else, One out, and people don't wear their seatbelts, one out of five teenage deaths is alcohol-related, and they push that stuff like it's the breakfast of champions, and they'll give you grief forever if you suggest smoke marijuana instead. You know, it's a great point. That was, uh, someone brought with me today, Larry, as touring a facility. Um, and we were talking about, you know, child-proof wrapping and tamper-proof um, packaging. And it's like, okay, you've got tamper-proof packaging for a five-milligram edible. You know, you're fighting to get this thing open, right? There's no tamper-proof packaging on a bottle of vodka. You know, there's, there's no child-proofing. Like, you drink a bottle of vodka and you die. I mean, plain and simple. We talked about toxicity a minute ago. You drink a, a, a fifth of vodka and very likely you die, right? You, you take a, an edible or ten... Yeah, you might have a really unpleasant experience. It might suck. <laughs> you might end up, you know, going going to the hospital, you know, thinking that someone's trying to kill you. But you're not going to die, right? You know, at least not from the toxicity of the uh, of the substance itself. You know, you might do something stupid a- after taking it. But look, one of them was treated like plutonium, and one of them was treated like, yeah, let's throw a screw cap on this thing <laughs> and have at it. There's there isn't even like just a a push down like you know the way you have to have for um, to open up a pharmaceutical bottle. There's even anything like that to make it like childproof, tamper-proof. Like any four-year-old can uh, can get into a bottle of vodka or a bottle of scotch, you know. So it, it doesn't make sense to me that um, that one is so ingrained in, in our uh, the fabric of our society that there is no uh, safeguards against it, like zero whatsoever. Like you know, you don't tell people like, oh, you got to properly store your alcohol. You know, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. I agree, although I, I'm sure, and and there is merit, I suppose, to the position that. You know, a gummy is a lot more appealing to a child. A cupcake or a cookie that's, you know, infused, at least on its face, could attract a child. You know, yes, could they be attracted to a bottle of, of booze? No question about it, especially with all the funky labels they put on them these days. But 
you know, it, it, I agree. Yeah, I've got small kids and never once, you know, when I'm sitting there drinking a, a glass of wine or a bottle of beer or, you know, a margarita, never once when I go, hey, you want, you want some as a joke? My kids are like, no, get that away from you. Like, they, they want nothing to do with alcohol uh, as small children. Whereas if there's a, you know, an alcoholic gummy, um, yeah, that'd be a real fear of mine. And that's a legitimate um, uh, comparison. So, but, but yeah, we, we did cover the election uh, quite a bit. We certainly covered the fact that, you know, two out of five states passed, the two most important states population-wise passed. Uh, we also talked about the fact that, you know, we, we very likely are going to see some incremental change coming from, from some other states based on the outcome of this election. And then, you know, the big question was what happens with, with major pieces of legislation at a federal level, um, you know, based on the outcome of this, which we, you know, Still, even you know today, don't know the answer to, to who is going to be in control of the House or who's going to be in control of the Senate, and we likely won't know that until probably the first or second week of December. So, you know, we've got some time to wait before final decisions are made. But you know, obviously, we're going into a lame duck session that um, that imagines you know some big decisions being made by the Dems while they still have a mandate. And uh, you know, I, I don't know where you come out on this. Morris and I kind of pontificated a little bit, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. Well. First of all, I have to give a quick shout out to Missouri. Morris doesn't necessarily know I'm from St. Louis or born and raised originally. And I spend most of my life trying to deflect the fact I'm from Missouri, except for the Cardinals. Uh, but here is something that's just great, right? I mean, when Rob on our show last week, when we were looking at the article that was that was kind of assessing the chances, uh, Missouri had dipped to the negative. There was a, the, the latest poll had showed that it had gone from strong support to maybe not quite enough support. And I could not be happier to see that the people of Missouri, notwithstanding some of the people they send to Washington, D.C., had the common sense and the, and the good vision and, and uh, judgment to go ahead and pass this statute. It, it's, it's, it's very, very important for all the reasons we've talked about. Marijuana exists in Missouri. It exists all over the place. So like every other state, they're smart to get on top of it and, and be a part of it rather than trying to pretend that it doesn't happen like some of these other states. You know, we were talking about the Dakotas and Arkansas that they couldn't say that, see their way way clear to it. On a federal level, I think that it's like anything else that we're asking the populace to shift the, the popular view, right? We, we did it with gay marriage and went from being wildly unpopular to wildly popular. And I think that we will see something similar with marijuana and uh, all forms of cannabis over time. Um, because what we've just said before, we can sit here and say this because we pay attention. Other people don't. At what point after we have adult use marijuana is everyone going to say, okay, we were wrong about the fact that it'll do X, Y, and Z because it hasn't done that yet. Okay, we were wrong that it would kill people. It hasn't killed people yet. Are, are, are people ever going to say that? Are there, is there ever going to be a point in time, right, where they'll acknowledge it? I don't know, but certainly when you get more than a majority, a clear majority, and this, you know, these days elections are decided by 51%. If you get 55 to 60 or even more percent of the country saying we like, we favor legal cannabis, at some point, the politicians have to take notice. The Supreme Court, if it ever gets up to them, has to take notice like they do on every other issue. And, you know, they all saw their way clear eventually to, uh, you know, allowing gay marriage and a number of other issues that have come before the court. And, uh, you know, hopefully if these issues ever came up to once they come up to Congress and if anybody challenges it and tries to pull a Christie gnome once it's passed and go back and say, no, it really shouldn't count, that people will stop and take a look and say, you know what? Sorry, you guys aren't in the majority by at all anymore. Not that legal issues have to be decided, should be decided on the majority, but this is not really a legal issue. This is a, this is a, even more than a lifestyle issue. It's a, it, it dives right back into personal freedoms. You know, people want to, Colorado's, you know, a great state because 
personal freedoms on guns, but they're right there with personal freedoms on marijuana. So, you know, I'm not such a big fan of one. I'm a huge fan of the other, and I can appreciate the sentiment that they bring to the table with that. You know, and I, I think eventually we're going to see more and more people stop and say, hey, wait, this is, why can't I smoke? Why is my kid getting busted for something that that's safer than the alcohol that they could probably be drinking walking down the street and the cops would just wave to them? Well, when it comes to this freedom thing, I still don't understand when, um, you know, these Republicans, the uh, DeSantis's and the Texas Abbots, it's like freedom, freedom, freedom. But it's like not when it comes to a woman's right to choose and not when it comes to cannabis. It's like all guns. Yes, we can talk about freedom, all the, you know, freedom of speech and, you know, and no CRT and we can say whatever the fuck we want to say. But, you know, no freedom to choose. You know, we'll see what happens with you brought up the gay marriage thing. If that ends up back in the Supreme Court and they say, you know what, we're just going to kick this back to the states like we did with Roe versus Wade. I would not be surprised at all if it happens that way. Oh. Oberfell very likely is, is going to get challenged under this uh, Supreme Court, you know, but in a different way. I mean, you think so? Yeah, I do. But I, I mean, I think that there's a difference between um, between Roe v. Wade, the way it was settled and the way that Oberfell was settled. So the, the, the distinction that was made and the reason it got sent back to the states from a legal perspective, the first ruling, the Roe v. Wade ruling opened the door for that and the Supreme Court kind of kicked it down. So um, so there, there is there are legal distinctions between the two. But I think given the composition of the court, you know, expect to see everything get challenged if they think they can push it through. So, you know, we'll see. Loving versus Virginia, anyone? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the case that says states can't stop interracial marriages. But yet we have Clarence Thomas, black man married to a white woman, debating that this right of privacy and hands off me exists. Well, it, it can't exist for one and not for the other. And he, eventually he's going to be put in a position where he's going to have to figure that out. And I don't want to be in the room when it happens because people might get hurt. But, uh, you know, yeah, that, that's, that's all just, uh, but look, look at what's happening. And, you know, far be it for me to beat up on people, but Uvalde, Texas voted overwhelmingly for Abbott and Republicans, notwithstanding the fact that Abbott's response to the shooting there was beyond horrific. But that doesn't stop people in the state. And I, I will pick on Texas because they deserve it. One of the issues in the, in the election this year was lack of access for handicapped voters. Their governor is handicapped, for God's sakes. And he was making it hard for people who are handicapped, who are Democrats, to have access to vote. That when we're dealing with that kind of mindset, that's the time when, you know what I do? I get stoned and check out because that's too much for me. Well, one thing we haven't touched on yet from this election cycle, and I think we should, is we now have probably the most pro-Canada senator we've ever had in the U.S. Senate in uh, John Fetterman. So, you know, whether or not that makes a major difference and whether or not, you know, the, the composition of the Senate ends up being 50-50 or 51-49, you know, coming out of this, we'll see after Georgia, uh, it really probably doesn't make much difference on the national stage. But we do have someone that uh, has been probably the single biggest advocate to, you know, cannabis rights and the cannabis uh, progression that we've seen while he was lieutenant governor under uh, under Tom Wolf's um, governorship in, in Pennsylvania. And we've also got Josh Shapiro that's now sitting in the governor's role. I mean, he's taken over from Wolf. And I think that Shapiro and Fetterman, if you were to say what state is most likely to see a major change happening soon, those two guys, I think, are, uh, are certainly going to push something through. And I think that very likely... Um, with the win that you just saw Shapiro have, I mean, granted, Mastriano was a, a relatively flawed candidate on the Republican side, but that was a decisive victory in a state. I mean, not, not quite as decisive as DeSantis's victory was or Abbott's victory was. I mean, those, those were far, far um, wider in terms of what the, the vote was 
that I think most would have expected going into yesterday or the, the election. But um, but Shapiro certainly you know handily handily won his race uh, against Mastriano. So do we think Pennsylvania you know is, is going to now follow uh, suit with New York and Connecticut, and New Jersey? Yeah, I would I would say yes. I think they have to, don't they? And and, and we've talked about the power of you know how can you be the only state out there in the whole New York. Massachusetts, everything, uh, you know, triangle where everything's can and be the one state that's not doing it. You, you'll get killed. And Philadelphia is huge. If, if New Jersey has it, uh, quick shout out to my good buddy, Steve Shane, who has an office in Philly and an office in Jersey. Why? Cause it's right across the river. That's a little too easy for people. You know, you, you can't allow all that business to shift out of the state. And I think you're right. I think Fetterman and Shapiro will push to make, uh, Pennsylvania an adult use state. So, hey, we're, we're running you know, pretty close to the end of our episode, but I wanted to make sure that Morris had a chance to talk about his guitar line as well, because you've got one of the more interesting uh, things out there we haven't even talked about at all. So let's get off politics for a minute. Let's talk about some cool music shit, even if it's not really a Grateful Dead episode today. Tell us about what you got going on, man. So I started Silver Mountain Hemp Guitars. I guess it was like I came up with the name in 2018. and um, But I've, there was a company in Canada called Canadian Hemp Guitars that had launched in 2013 and started to build some hemp composite based guitars. Um, I got one at NOCO Hemp Expo in 2015 and I started talking to those guys, see if they would custom make me some guitars. And they were also making some ukuleles at the time, uh, again, using a hemp composite material. So we started making some guitars and um, the guys were more or less hobbyists. And they just didn't have the time to to really put into it for what I needed to have them do. And I came across this other group, uh, the French Brothers, who were working with um, a, a group called the Hard Truckers making guitar cabinets. And the Hard Truckers, the guy who put, I think, I can't remember what John's last name was, but they were building guitar cabinets for Jimmy Herring and Derek Trucks and a variety of the jam band guys. Um Colonel Bruce Hampton. And so I came up, I found a, they were making these birchwood guitar cabinets and they had made a few hemp cabinets back in like 2018 or 2008, 2009. And they were getting board product from China, which then became inconsistent and they couldn't make them the cabinets consistently until we started producing some stuff here in the U S um, I came up with a board product that I got to them made a whole bunch of guitar cabinets uh, and we loaded them with Tone Tubby hemp cone speakers. And Tone Tubby is a company that's been making hemp cone speakers since I believe 2000. And they're based out of San Francisco and go to the NAMM show every year. And um, lots of guitar players have used their, their speaker cones, Derek trucks, Santana, um, James Hetfield from Metallica. They've had a bunch of people use them over the years. Uh, oh, what's his name? Warren Haynes. Um, so I start. I had the the guitar cabinet guys start making me some hemp body guitars, and we started utilizing hemp wood, it, which is a company out of Kentucky that's taking stocks, compressing it into a board product that you can make flooring and cabinets with. And so we've been making hemp gu- body guitars and guitar cabinets and amplifiers now, and figured out how to do it. And we can custom shop pretty much anything at this point. It's been a little bit quiet the last year and a half after COVID. I've been, I haven't had as much extra money to dump into my passion. I've been trying to keep everything else afloat, but, um, but they're cool guitars. They sound great. The, the amps sound great. And 
there's a future for hemp guitars. How do we find you? Silvermountainhemp.com. Very cool. Very, very cool, man. And it was in honor of Ronnie James Dio, the man on the Silver Mountain. So here's to Ronnie. <laughs> Everything should be in. in uh... <laughs> Even though Ronnie's not a guitar player, he did play with Blackmore and they did record Man on the Silver Mountain back in 1974. <laughs> my, uh, my roommate in college, all like for like seven years after college, his first concert ever was a Ronnie James Dio show. So shout out to my buddy Ed Krebser. But, uh, you know, definitely got him on the 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 heavy metal train at a young age, you know, coming out of Woodstock, New York, filled with a bunch of hippies for him to have his first show. He grew up with, you know, members of the band and members of, you know, name, name the, the artist, you know, John Sebastian and his first show is a Dio show. So, uh, you know, that's fantastic. Way, way to honor Ronnie James, man. Yep. And, you know, bless his soul. He got taken out by cancer too, which is not a good thing. And he was like, he was young. He was like 65 or 66. You would have thought that Ozzy would have gone before him, but Ozzy's still alive and kicking. Yeah, I don't know how Ozzy and Keith Richards are uh, freaks of nature. Uh, how either one of them are, are still Stephen Tyler, I think, as well. Um, so, give us your dates also for NoCo. So, anyone that's listening knows how to find NoCo now that it's down in, as you said, in SoCo. Um, when and where, and uh, any other information you want to provide on that one too. Yep. So that's March 29th through the 31st at the Broadmoor Resort in Colorado Springs which is the longest standing five-star resort in the world. Uh, once Forbes started their five-star rating back in 1960, the Broadmoor has hit it every single year. Um, 5,000 acre resort, brand new convention and meeting space, uh, beautiful facility to grow out an international hemp and environmental convention. You know, we're, we're still in the infancy of bringing hemp back into the American you know, agriculture system into the supply chain. So I look at, we're just starting, you know, we've got 20, 30 years to go before we're going to hit our peak. And hopefully we'll, we'll get there because we need to make some changes as a society and as a species when it comes to how we treat our earth and how we treat each other. Otherwise we're not going to be around that much longer. That's true too. Is the Broadmoor, is that the, the hotel they used in the shining? Uh, that's the Stanley. That's up in Estes Park. Stanley. Okay. Dude, you got to know your Colorado hotels, man. <laughs> you got to know your classic, classic monster places. Yeah. It's, uh... I know. I, I flunked that one. Before we check off, Rob, uh, let me just say a couple of things. First of all, I know we didn't have a lot of time to talk about music today. There's always great Grateful Dead shows to talk to, uh, to play, but we don't always get a guy like Morris Beagle. And uh, quite frankly, that was far more interesting, I think, than uh, any music we might have come up with. However, Live music continues on, and even though everybody's listening to this on Monday, so this will be the weekend that just passed. On Friday night, I'm going to get to go to Space in Evanston and see uh, Ben Ottawell and Ian Ball from Gomez. Uh, very excited about that. I was always a big Gomez fan. And then on Saturday night, I'm going to see my first full-blown Umphreys show. I, I did see them at the Sacred Rose Festival and caught their set there, which was very nice and a lot of fun. Uh, but all the Umphreys heads that I was there with said, but you, you have to see a show. You just have to go see a show. So this Saturday night, I'm going with my buddies uh, Rick and Joel over to see Umphreys at the Vic Theater in Chicago, which is a, a legendary theater on the north side of the city the, that we all like. To, right across the street from the Uptown, uh, which to my chagrin, I never had a chance to see a show in because by the time I got on the bus, they were already shutting it down. Uh, but great live music on tap. And then, Morris, are you going to be at the MJ Biz uh, coming up here? I am going to be there, and I do want to say, because you, since you came on late, I was asked if I had ever seen The Dead before, and I saw The Dead in 1984 at Red Rocks, 
which I guess is a show that you were at. Oh, wow. Right? I was there in 1984. Which night were you there? I'm not sure. I went with a buddy of mine who was a deadhead, and I was a metalhead at the time. But I saw, I saw the dead there. That, that, that question was essentially a prelude to, were you there for the hailstorm? I did that. I was not there on the hailstorm. Right, right. Were you there the night of the hailstorm? Were you there the night of the Dear Mr. Fantasy? Or the, you know, the night they played the U.S. Blues two days too early? Yeah, so I'm not sure. There was no hailstorm. But I did see Umphreys McGee at Red Rocks this summer. And that was the first time I've seen him. And they were great. No, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Well, hopefully Morris will have a chance to meet up with you at, uh, at MJ Biz, uh, which is coming up just here in a couple of days. Rob and I will be there. Dan will be out there. We are actually taping the next episode of our show on uh, Friday. This coming Friday at 12 noon Pacific time uh, from Podcast Row in the Las Vegas Convention Center at MJ Biz. So uh, any of our fans out there, the multitudes, if you want to come by and say hello, talk Grateful Dead, talk marijuana, share a joint. Don't say that, Larry. We're going to get mobbed. Well, I, I know, but Dan's, Dan's got security worked out, so we should be okay. I hope so. With all our multitudes of fans, I don't know how we're going to get through the door now that they know where we're going to be. That was a huge mistake, man. There could be like 30,000 or 40,000 of your fans there. Way more than that, Morris. <laughs> Way more than that. Well, we'll connect in Vegas and we'll fire one up. Yeah, I will look forward to that. Absolutely. Um, and I'm going to let Rob sign off and just say goodbye to everybody. Have a great week. Uh, fun talking to Morris. Fun talking about all sorts of good stuff. And uh, enjoy your hemp responsibly. Rob, take us home. Well, thanks to Morris Beagle for, uh, for showing up. And thanks for walking us through what's happening in the hemp industry. And Everyone out there, thank you for voting uh, this past week. Uh, as we said, you know, the week before, such an important thing to do. So for everyone out there that actually put their ballot in or went to the, a polling place, thank you for doing your uh, your civic duty as an American and, and getting your vote in there. It is hugely important, no matter where you stand on the issues, to make your voice heard. Um, with that, uh, signing off from Southern California, but in the spirit of the Grateful Dead, just here to remember and remind you that the future is here. We are it and we are on our own. Take it away.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on Pod. Connex, and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.